All right. Uh, If you have a Bible, go ahead and um, pull out your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew. Uh, We'll start in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, um, we'd invite you to um, download one or buy one. Uh, And if you don't own one, um, please feel free to talk to the leadership team here. We would love to get you a Bible. Um, the, The version of the scriptures that we teach out of Uh, is the NIV as a leadership team. That's what we've chosen to use for teaching purposes, and we think it's a a high-quality translation for a number of reasons. Um, But really, feel free to use whichever uh, translation of the Scriptures um, that you feel most comfortable with. Uh, We will be picking up uh, in the book of Matthew, and we'll be focusing our time today exclusively on verse 1. So, verse 1 Chapter 1 says this, says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If you were with us last week, you know that we managed to cover half of this verse, uh, focusing on the significance of Jesus being the son of Abraham. Today, uh, we are going to finish the verse uh, by covering the other half, in answering the question of what is the significance of Jesus being the son of David. Now this phrase, uh, the son of David, uh, appears numerous times in Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. And in fact, Matthew uses this phrase uh, more than all the other gospel writers combined. So as we're starting into the book of Matthew, um, this is going to be kind of a key theme Uh, for us to unlock right out of the gate. Um, So that's where we'll be spending our time this evening. Uh, But in order to kind of show the significance uh, of this phrase, uh, I'm actually going to need you to turn to the Old Testament, uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, And in a few minutes, we'll pick up in verse 11. If you were here with us last week, um, we talked in depth about God's promise to Abraham. Uh, And part of that promise or covenant that God made with Abraham uh, is that despite him being old and having a barren wife, God promised that a nation of people would come from him. And long story short, God miraculously delivers on that promise, and Abraham does in fact have children and grandchildren, uh, and eventually Abraham's descendants go to Egypt, where over the course of several centuries, Uh, they multiply to a million, if not millions, of descendants. Then, after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, uh, God sets out to free these people, and he brings them up to the land that he promised to Abraham that he would give them, uh, which they creatively called the promised land. On the way up to this land, uh, God makes it clear to the people that they are to have an intimate relationship with him, that they've been set aside for a purpose, so to speak. And the language God uses is that they are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And in fact, God makes it clear that he wants to lead this nation. Uh, They are not to operate as other nations do. They, They are to look and act in a unique manner. And even in forms... Um, that we would consider to be um, organizational or, or, or government forms. They were to be unique. 
And so the plan for this nation was that God would actually rule the nation and other leaders and prophets and and priests would aid in carrying out the rulership of God. So God was to lead them and provide for them and protect them against much stronger surrounding empires that threatened to to swallow up this little nation. And and so God would, would love them and lead them And in exchange, uh, the people were to follow God in obedience, uh, operating under the covenant law that he had given them. Uh, And and by doing this, they would constantly point to God and back into history at God's past actions. And in their operating, they would reflect God into the world. They, They would take God's will and his righteousness and his justice and reflect it into the physical, visible world. And and if they functioned in this way, the intent was that this nation would point all the other nations back to their creator. They were almost, these other nations, were almost to be drawn in by curiosity. So that they would come come up here about this nation or come to this nation and say, hey, how did this nation come to be? And and where did you get such righteous um, decrees and law? And how did you get all this wisdom uh, about justice? And hey, who's king of this nation? And and why do you celebrate all these unique holidays that we've never heard of? And, and And the answer to all of those questions was God. God did it. God freed us. He made us. He brought us here. He gave us the land. He gave us these righteous decrees and laws. He is king of our nation. God is. That was the intent. And so God frees them and he brings them up to this promised land with a substantial amount of resistance and difficulty from the people. But as soon as they settle in, they produce a series of really disobedient leaders uh, who rather than aiding God in his rulership of the people, Um, actually go the exact opposite way and just as often introduce foreign gods and mislead the people and take them uh, in the opposite direction that God wants to lead them. Uh, And then finally, after this series of really bad leaders, um, we get Samuel, um, who's this uh, amazing godly leader and prophet, and, and he listens to God, and he's responsive, and he leads with integrity, and, and things are looking up, until First uh, Samuel 8, uh, where the people ask for a human king. And, and this is a huge problem because God was supposed to be their king. Uh, but the people come to Samuel, and this is what they say. Uh, Appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Okay, trick question. Is Israel supposed to be like all the other nations? No. Not not at all. They're supposed to be completely unique in the way they operate. And the people actually know that this is an evil request. And later on, they actually repent and admit, yeah, that that was a really evil thing for us to do. But check out God's response to Samuel. You can almost hear, hear the sigh in this. Samuel, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me, God, as their king. 
So in love, God works within their disobedience. And he gives them a man named Saul. And, and Saul is chosen by God. Uh, and then God directs Samuel, the prophet, to anoint Saul uh, with oil. Uh, which back in the day was this uh, physical, um, visible representation of, of a spiritual reality. Uh, that this individual was being set aside, set apart, and sort of marked for the indwelling spirit of God. So, so he's anointed, Saul is, and then he's made king. And in the beginning, things go really well. Uh, but it isn't too long before Saul uh, starts to disobey God uh, and disobey Samuel, who's the priest. And in fact, he tries to stand in Samuel's place as priest, and, and suddenly the whole thing just starts to go sideways. It, and so it isn't long after these events, and that the love of God compels him to start looking for a new king for his people. And so God directs Samuel to the town of Bethlehem, uh, to a boy named David, who's the youngest son uh, of a shepherd, uh, and, and someone who has no right to be king whatsoever. Uh, and, and yet, um, while Saul is still ruling in Israel, God tells Samuel, hey, go and anoint this boy uh, as king. And, and so David is anointed um, and, and marked for the indwelling spirit of God. And from that moment forward, um, the rule and reign of Saul starts to spiral into this dark, um, paranoid, sort of schizophrenic decline. It gets worse and worse. And at the same time, David, over the years, slowly starts to rise in popularity. Uh, and eventually, um, David does become the second king of Israel. And compared to Saul, and compared to all those who will come after him, um, David is an amazing king. He is um, a great leader. He's a great um, warrior. He's a poet. Uh, and most importantly, in the language of Scripture, uh, he's, a, he's a man uh, after God's own heart. And, and so he's far from perfect, but he's repentant in his imperfection, and, and he leads with heart, and, and he listens to God. And, and so not only is David an amazing and influential king, uh, but he's also the recipient of an unusual promise or covenant with God. Uh, so God forms a, a covenant with David that, that becomes integral to the future hope of Israel. So if you have your Bibles open to 2 Samuel 7, um, we'll pick up in verse 11 and, and just kind of read this language together. This is the language of the covenant that God makes with David. It says, The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house or, or a dynasty for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one uh, who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And this promise came to be central to the hope of Israel. They began to hope in this royal king who would arise from the line of David and rule on a throne forever. 
ushering in the kingdom of God. Even as the Israelites were destroyed on a national level and dragged off into exile, they still carried this hope. And in fact, God continued to speak to them about this hope. Uh, Here's what God told Jeremiah the prophet uh, who experienced the exile and being dragged out of the land. God said, hey, speak to the people and encourage them. Tell Israel that they will be restored. For the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. Here is the name by which it, the branch, will be called. The Lord, or Yahweh, our righteous Savior. For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of Israel. And and so the people waited for this. They waited for this son of David, for this righteous Savior. They waited for a deliverer. They waited for a Messiah. In fact, the word Messiah literally means anointed one. So in the same way that Saul was anointed and David after him and many after them, they were looking for this anointed one who was set aside and marked for the indwelling Spirit of God. He would come to restore Israel and usher in a new kingdom, bringing freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the brokenhearted. This hope was was tangible. It it, it was distinct. There There was clear imagery surrounding it. And so as the people suffered, Under the Babylonians, and then eventually under the Romans, they waited for the Messiah with bated breath. Who's going to deliver us? Who's going to free us, to set the captive free in the language of Isaiah, and bring freedom and usher in a new kingdom? This wasn't something that prophets talked about behind closed doors. This was a national, tangible, public hope. In fact, when Israelite women would give birth, amid all of the pain and chaos of childbirth, many of them would pray out loud in the moment that they were giving birth to the Messiah. God, let this be the one. Let this be the son of David. Let this be our deliverer. Free us. And they suffered and they waited. And over the years, false messiahs arose and false messiahs faded. Until finally, at just the right moment, in the town of Bethlehem, the city of David's birth, A son of David was born, born into the line of David. 
And, and the people began to wonder, um, could this be the one? It, it, could this be our deliverer? And throughout the boy's lifetime, this debate raged on. So when Jesus is walking in the marketplace, and the two blind men hear who's walking by, and they cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. They're not inventing strange religious language. And they're not simply remarking on the ancestry of Jesus. They're making a direct public claim about who they believe Jesus to be. They're weighing in on the debate. Hey, we think this guy's the one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of David, the one who will rule on a throne forever. To utter those words was a show of faith. And and the crowds start to catch on to this as you read through the Gospels. They recognize that Jesus is no ordinary human being. They recognize that, in fact, he is more than a prophet. And they begin to believe that he is the son of David who will rule on a throne and come to free his people. And their hope and their longing Uh, for freedom, rises to this fever pitch. And in fact, they're ready to force Jesus onto the throne. All Jesus had to do was say the word, and it would have happened. But Jesus had other plans. You see, the son of David wasn't just here to deliver Israel from the Romans. He was here to deliver all of humanity from the true enemy. Because God could see clearly what was destroying humanity. That that our um, inward selfish desires, our corrupted desire, what we call the flesh. That the systems of thinking and acting that we've been born into, what we call the world and, and its ways that all of these things are are destroying humanity, and yet even behind those, God could see our true enemy, the adversary, what the scriptures call Satan, and and the spiritual powers and authorities that have joined with him in rebellion against God. Because the scriptures tell us clearly that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms that seek to hijack and corrupt humanity, hitting us against ourselves and against one another. And in fact, this adversary has tremendous power and sway in this world to the point that the scriptures refer to him as the ruler of this world and the God, lowercase g, of this age. This is your true enemy. It's not the Romans or Al-Qaeda or your in-laws. They're all flesh and blood. And if it has flesh and blood, that's not your true enemy. 
It's not the Democrats or the Republicans or the communists or the socialists or the terrorists. It's the ruler of this world and the kingdom of darkness. And so Jesus came teaching and preaching, saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near, it's accessible, it's it's at your fingertips. It's breaking in, it's invading this world even as we speak. There is a new kingdom and a new king. But before this kingdom could come, Jesus had to conquer our enemies. And I mean our true enemies. And so to the shock and horror of those who followed him, he was captured by the religious elite and the very Romans he was supposed to overthrow. And he was put on trial. His crime, he claimed to be king. A royal king in the line of David, the son of David himself, the Messiah. For uttering these words, he had to die. And so they beat him until he could barely stand. And they mocked him and pounded a crown of thorns into his skull adorning him with the purple robes of royalty, uh, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they took him out and they nailed him to a Roman cross, putting a sign over his head that read in multiple languages, King of Jews. And as he breathed his last he proved to the onlooking world that in fact he was not the Messiah. How could he be? He was dead. He he wasn't ruling on a throne forever. He wasn't overthrowing their enemies and ushering in the kingdom of God. Looks like we got it wrong. And so the Jews buried him along with their hope. It turns out that he wasn't the Messiah, that he wasn't son of David. Clearly they had been mistaken. But three days later, the tomb that they had buried him in was empty. And Jesus, having been executed publicly, was now alive and at work among them again. And the message was clear. Death has been defeated. It turns out that something was being accomplished on that cross, something that no onlooker could perceive with the naked eye, that forgiveness was being won, and with it, eternal life. Jesus conquered sin and death through his death and resurrection, and he conquered the spiritual powers and authorities, all of our true enemies. And now, having resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father, Jesus is king over creation. And because Jesus is the only one who has conquered our true enemies, Jesus is the only one who can offer true freedom. 
not freedom of speech or the freedom to do what you want or the, the right to bear arms, but freedom from sin and freedom from death itself. In and through Jesus, God has become king all over again. And just as David was anointed and made king while Saul still ruled over Israel, so too our Jesus has been made king over creation while the God of this age, our enemy, is still at large. And so in the midst of the kingdom of darkness, in the midst of an evil spiritual regime, we go about announcing the gospel that there is a new king, the son of David, who will rule on a throne forever. Sin and death no longer have a hold on his followers. In fact, there's a new type of freedom breaking forth. And the kingdom of heaven is invading the old kingdom and the old order and the old way of doing things. The kingdom of God is now at work among us. And the kingdom of darkness, with Satan at its helm, is coming undone. That in fact, what Jesus did unhinged that kingdom, and, and, and his power is now being stripped from him. He is being disarmed and judged and given the death sentence. Our enemy's time is almost And just like Saul, he's still gripping for power even as his kingdom begins to decline. Even as his rule and reign is collapsing. But the writing is on the wall. This world is slipping from his grip. And Jesus has already been anointed as the new king. And now nothing can stop his kingdom from coming in its fullness. Everyone who follows him will one day stand in the new heavens and the new earth. And just as Israel suffered and waited and, and, and longed for the Messiah to come under an oppressive regime, so too we wait in this world and we wait for this world to be set right again. We wait for the Messiah to return. And when he returns, he will eradicate evil and usher in the fullness of the kingdom of God, ruling on a throne forever. But, but between now and then, we know that the kingdom of darkness is not all there is. That the ruler of this world does not have the final say. And so we long for Messiah, and we long for the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. But, but even as we do, we don't wait in fear and anxiety. We don't shrink back in the face of evil. In fact, we move forward knowing that Jesus conquered it and knowing in the same breath that this world and its systems and this ways will reject us because we belong to a different kingdom. And we've sworn allegiance to a different And so Matthew 
starts his gospel with a very simple and profound concept. This Jesus, whose genealogy you are about to read, is a king in the line of Abraham, the son of David, the anointed one, the Messiah. The true king of the universe, he has conquered our true enemies and now is the only one who offers true freedom. And he invites us under his kingship. The debate that raged through his lifetime was ended in his resurrection. And now the invitation is to come follow him as king. And so Matthew starts by saying the hope of Messiah is being fulfilled. And the covenant with David is being fulfilled. And as a result, our hope does not lie in who's going to sit in the Oval Office of the White House. Our hope lies in who sits enthroned in heaven at the right hand of the Father, the Son of David, who will rule on a throne for eternity. And so as we close, I want to share a few thoughts on what this means for us. Uh, On just a practical level, as followers of Jesus, down in the trenches, uh, Monday morning, why does it matter that Jesus is the Son of David and that Jesus is King? Three quick connected thoughts on the implications of that. If Jesus is king, that has everything to do with our submission, with our freedom, and with our fear. First, if you're taking notes, uh, our submission. As a new Christian, I I really struggled with this um, concept, this idea of submission. And I'm betting that most of us uh, in the room tonight struggle with it. Because submission is is kind of a dirty word in our culture. Uh, You see, within the American church, we're fine with Jesus being God. That's great. If Jesus is God, then he can bless me and he can forgive me and he can give me eternal life. But, If Jesus is king, that comes with a whole other set of assumptions. Because Americans don't want a king. We struggle with this because if Jesus is king, it means that you're not. And if Jesus is on the throne, there's not a whole lot of space left for us. And and this is difficult. This is is a difficult concept. It it kind of forces us into this awful choice. We have to choose whether we will reject or accept Jesus as king. Because if you accept his kingship, it means that he's king over all of you. Not just king over your heart. Whatever that means but king over your anger and king over your finances and your generosity and king over your sexuality, all of and and king over your thought life and over your free time and over the car that you drive and the classes that you take and the person you choose to date 
and, and what you dream about, the good and the bad, king over everything. And so central to our walk as disciples is the process of, of continually waking up to the kingship of Jesus and continually submitting our lives to Jesus again. As a new Christian, uh, discovering the way of Jesus, I, I was confronted by the fact um, that, that lustful thinking um, wasn't just a passing thought for me. It, it was more of a pastime. It, it, it was a hobby. It, it ruled my thinking. And, and of course, um, our actions flow out of our thoughts. And so what I had to do is wrestle with this idea of submission and, and submit that, submit my thought life to Jesus' kingship and authority and power. Knowing that no matter how habitual that was, that Jesus was bigger than that and that he as king actually had the power to overcome those things. And that started for me a process of months and years of submitting that to Jesus and finding freedom in that. Because he's king over everything, over galaxies and, and nations and families and me. All. And, and this process that I'm describing um, is known as dying to yourself. And, and the actual process of it is really terrible in the moment. But as you die to yourself, you find a whole new type of freedom. Because Jesus is the only one who has conquered our true enemies, he's the only one who offers true freedom. Freedom from sin and habitual enslaving patterns. Freedom from the rule and reign of our enemy and the kingdom of darkness. The freedom of our hearts and our minds. Freedom from those enslaving patterns of the world and the ravenous desires of our flesh. Over and against all of that noise and static and push and pull, Jesus says, hey, take heart. I have overcome the world. I'm king. So we submit to the king, and as we do, we find a, a truer freedom than we've ever known before. Because God loves you, and he wants you to be free from everything that binds you. And one of the greatest things he frees us from is fear. Do you see how those are connected? Jesus has defeated our enemies and everything that binds us. And the last enemy to be defeated is death. We have nothing to fear. We don't fear the darkness we don't fear failure. We don't fear inadequacy. We don't fear being alone or unloved. We don't fear death anymore. Nothing is more liberating 
Instead, we as a people stand in hopeful opposition to all of the true enemies of humanity. And we are called to love those who are locked in the grip of darkness because if they have flesh and blood, they're not the true enemy. Instead, we continually look to the inbreaking kingdom of heaven and we continually look to the new king who has already been anointed. We are ambassadors of the true king, of the true kingdom, which is now invading the old. And we have nothing to fear. There there is no power in heaven or on earth or under the earth No power, no authority, no spirit, no vice, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can stop God's kingdom from advancing. And so we wait for the son of David to return. And as we wait, we are unafraid. And we pray together in one voice the way that Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in Spokane as it is heaven. Let's pray.